Hey everybody, welcome back to Sports Island, your getaway destination for sports news. I'm your host, Rick Mitchell. Well, we are super close to the return of a few more major pro sports getting underway, and there is plenty to talk about this week, plenty of newsworthy updates from this past week, so let's go ahead and take a look at everything that went down in this past week. We'll start off on the PGA Tour again. Now, we didn't have any issues with the new coronavirus testing protocols that the PGA implemented this past week. and The PGA pulled off yet another very solid and successful week. They are continuing to show that professional sports can coexist during the pandemic. And despite the fact that golf can easily be played with social distancing, the PGA has laid the groundwork for the other major pro sports to follow in their own ways. And it is definitely promising to see the PGA Tour continue to succeed week after week during the pandemic. But this past weekend's tournament was the Workday Charity Open, and it was at Muirfield Village Golf Club in Dublin, Ohio. And the course was in very good condition for the most part, and the weather cooperated. We had a little delay early in the week, um, but Sunday's round, they got the tee times got bumped up, which did cause some viewing issues. Um, but that was just to avoid the forecasted weather that was projected in Ohio uh, Sunday afternoon. But the course played at a par 72, and it did provide some challenging holes for the golfers. And we did see yet another weekend with just another very low winning score. And man, there was some serious drama at the end of the round on Sunday. And this weekend had the best finish by far out of the five PGA Tour events that have happened since the restart but the final group on Sunday was Justin Thomas Colin Morikawa and Victor Hovland and man they put on a show Hovland started out strong Uh, he took the lead early on Sunday I think he was the leader through four holes Uh, but he ended up cooling off and finished third But starting on the back nine, it was really a two-horse race between Justin Thomas and Colin Morikawa. And Justin Thomas eagled 15, which put him at 21 under par at the time. And Colin Morikawa through 15 was at 18 under and three shots behind Thomas with just three holes to play. And... Thomas went ahead and bogeyed 16, and Colin Morikawa birdied 17, and through 17 holes, Morikawa was just one shot behind Thomas. Thomas was at 20 under, Morikawa was at 19, and Morikawa went out on 18 and parred, which put pressure on Justin Thomas to close out. So all Justin Thomas needed to do was par the hole to win. But he bogeyed it, 
so there was a tie at 19 under par, which forced a playoff hole. And the playoff hole, they, they played the 18th hole again, which is a par 4. And there was even more drama because Thomas and Morikawa both birdied the first playoff hole. And the putts that Thomas and Morikawa made on the first playoff hole were just unbelievable. Thomas was away, and he putted first, and he sank a massive 50-footer with break to birdie the hole. I mean, it was just unbelievable to watch. You thought he had no chance to make the putt when he let it go, and you just kept tracking it, and it was going straight for the hole the entire time. But... That put pressure on Colin Morikawa to make his birdie putt from 24 feet to keep the tournament alive. And not to be outdone, of course, Morikawa sank his 24-foot birdie putt. So they teed it off again from 18 for a second playoff hole. And the second playoff hole did not yield a winner as they both parred the hole. So they moved on to hole number 10 for the third playoff hole. And on that hole, Justin Thomas had an errant drive. And Morikawa put his drive in the middle of the fairway. And Thomas's drive ended up costing him because Morikawa was just completely dialed in. And he drained his birdie putt. And Thomas finished with a par... So that means that Morikawa won. And Morikawa's victory this week, final score of 19 under par, uh, was his second PGA Tour win in just his 24th PGA Tour start. So the kid is off to a scorching start in his career, and he is going to be fun to watch for years to come. But let's revisit Rick's Picks to Click from this past weekend. Well, last week I gave you Patrick Cantlay, Xander Shoffley, and Justin Rose as my Picks to Click. And for the third time in three weeks, I clicked on two of the three. But let's just get the elephant out of the room right now. Justin Rose was the pick that I missed. And I didn't just miss it. I bombed it. Well, I mean, he bombed it. But Justin Rose was someone who has had tremendous success at this course in the past. And he went out there and went eight over par in his second round to finish at 10 over par for the tournament in two rounds. And he missed the cut by 12 shots. Sheesh. I don't really have much to say on that other than I would have lost a lot of money if somebody was to told me that was going to be his stat line. But my second pick to click there was Patrick Cantlay. And for the first three rounds, Cantlay was not flashy and he was never really close to contending. But then he went out there in round four on Sunday And he ripped off a 7-under 65 
which catapulted him up to 11-under for the tournament and a 7th place finish. Um, he just was lights out on Sunday. And my final pick to click was Xander Shoffley. And his Shoffley's first two rounds were not great. He was only two under par through two rounds. But then he went out there and fired a six under 66 in round three, which moved him up the leaderboard. And again, you found his name near the top of the leaderboard on Saturday and Sunday. Um, Shoffley finished at 10 under par, which was good for 14th. But uh, this week, the PGA is staying at Muirfield Village Golf Club for the Memorial Tournament. And I'm very interested to see how the PGA plans on changing the course setup for this week since the majority of the field just played the course this past weekend. And I'd be willing to bet that the PGA is going to roll the greens so they're going to be a lot faster. And I'm sure they're also going to change the pin locations for all four rounds as well. Now, the field does add some new faces this week, including the return of Tiger Woods and one of my picks to click that we'll get into in just a minute. But with the low scores we are seeing every week, it is definitely not a guarantee that the winner is going to be someone who just played the course this past weekend. But that being said... Let's check out Rick's picks to click for this weekend's Memorial Tournament. And I'll start off with Bryson DeChambeau. I've been all over this guy the last few weeks, but he's rattled off seven consecutive top ten finishes, including a win last week at the Rocket Mortgage Classic. And he's just taken the PGA Tour by storm since the restart And he took this past weekend off to rest and regroup. He's not showed any signs of slowing down. And and I don't care if he hasn't, or he didn't play this past weekend at Muirfield when most of everybody did. He has been the best golfer on tour since the restart. And I can see him adding the 2020 Memorial Tournament to his trophy case. Oh, and by the way, he won this very tournament in 2018. But my second pick to click this week is going to be Justin Thomas. And Justin Thomas lost an absolute heartbreaker against Colin Morikawa in three playoff holes this past weekend. And Thomas has three top 10 finishes in four starts since the restart. So You would definitely be mistaken if you think he's going to come out flat this week. The dude is locked in, and he's ready to get his third win on tour this season. Now, my final pick to click this week is going to be Webb Simpson. And Webb Simpson has two wins, three second-place finishes, and a third-place finish in the last 12 months. He is up to number five in the world rankings, and he leads the tour in par 4 scoring, converting greens and regulation into par breakers, and several other stats. He has just been lethal since the restart, including a win a few weeks ago at the RBC Heritage. And I just expect him to finish near the top this week at the Memorial. 
But we'll move on to the National Hockey League. And last week, the NHL announced that their two hub cities are going to be Toronto and Edmonton. Toronto is going to play host to the Eastern Conference teams, while Edmonton will play host to the Western Conference teams, as well as the Stanley Cup Finals. And this past weekend, the NHL began Phase 3 of their return-to-play plan, which meant the start of team training camps at their home facilities. And I discussed the protocols in place for Phase 3 during last week's podcast, so if you missed those, go back and check it out. But the teams only have a couple weeks of training camp before they head to their respective hub cities to begin Phase 4, which is the start of the playoffs. Now, the NHL released the official schedule for the qualifying round and the round-robin matchups. So the current top four seeds in each conference are going to play each other in a three-game round-robin in order to determine seeds one through four when the quarterfinal round begins after the qualifying round. And the seeds are going to be determined based on the standings after the three-game round-robin matchups. And the top four seeds in the Western Conference right now are the St. Louis Blues, Colorado Avalanche, Dallas Stars, and Vegas Golden Knights. And the top four seeds in the Eastern Conference the Boston Bruins, Tampa Bay Lightning, Washington Capitals, and the Philadelphia Flyers. Now, the qualifying round matchups are also set, and man, we got some good ones. Keep in mind that the qualifying round is a best-of-five series to see who makes it into the qualifying rounds to play those top four seeds. And in the Western Conference... We got the Edmonton Oilers against the Chicago Blackhawks, Winnipeg Jets against the Calgary Flames, the Nashville Predators against the Arizona Coyotes, the Vancouver Canucks against the Minnesota Wild. And in the Eastern Conference, we have the Pittsburgh Penguins against the Montreal Canadiens, the New York Islanders against the Florida Panthers, Carolina Hurricanes against the New York Rangers, and the Toronto Maple Leafs against the Columbus Blue Jackets. Now, if you're wondering if the Edmonton Oilers and the Toronto Maple Leafs will have home ice advantage, since those are the two hub cities, I'll argue that they probably won't. First, there's not going to be any fans in attendance at any of the games. And if you've watched the NHL playoffs before you know just how loud and rowdy the crowds are and just how much the fans can actually impact the home team's ability to grind out a win. So without fans, it's really going to be anybody's game. And secondly, the Oilers and the Maple Leafs, they're going to have to stay at a hotel inside of the bubble, which means that they do not get to stay at their own residence. And that makes more of a difference than you'd think. And I think anyone out there can agree that you get much better sleep in your own bed than you do a hotel. So you couple that aspect with the fact that there's going to be no fans in attendance. And I think the playing field is going to be level. 
And really, the only advantage for the Oilers and the Maple Leafs is that they have familiarity with the arena and how the ice is. And they know how the puck's going to bounce off the boards in the glass. And as strange as that sounds, the puck actually does bounce differently at the different arenas. It's a really minute advantage, and it should not make too big of an impact, if any impact at all. And so that's why I believe that this setup is really about as fair as can be. I don't really think that there's an advantage to anyone, especially since all the players have had four months away from actual competitive games. It really just comes down to who prepares the best in this shortened mini training camp that just got underway. But back to the qualifying round schedule. The NHL set up the schedule to where there's going to be six games played per day, and that's three in each hub city. And the games are going to be played at 12 noon, 4 p.m., and 8 p.m. And since Edmonton is two hours behind Toronto, that means that we're going to have playoff hockey going on all day. And that is just a viewer's dream right there. The qualifying round and round-robin games are going to start on August 1st, and they're going to conclude on August 9th. Teams will be given August 10th off, and the quarterfinal round is going to start right after that. Now keep in mind that the eight teams who lose their best-of-five qualifying round matchups are entered into the pool of teams eligible for the first overall pick in the NHL draft. And I talked about that a couple weeks ago on the second episode of the podcast. So if you missed that, definitely go check that out. I had quite a bit to say on that. But the NHL is slated to have their draft lottery for the first pick on August 10th. Um, So it's definitely going to be interesting to see how the qualifying round turns out uh, and which teams lose in the qualifying round, especially with the four-month layoff that they've just had. But I'm certainly glad that playoff hockey is officially back. But we'll move on now to another major topic this past week, and that is the NCAA and collegiate athletics. And man, there was a whirlwind of news that came from the NCAA this week regarding the cancellation of sports and the changes to fall sports in the calendar year coming up. And it started off with Stanford University. Stanford announced that they have cut 11 varsity sports from their program. Now, Stanford has long boasted one of the most robust collections of varsity sports in the country. So it is definitely a surprise to see them cut that many sports. And the cuts don't take effect until after the 2020-2021 academic year. But the varsity sports that were cut were men's and women's fencing, field hockey, lightweight rowing, men's rowing, co-ed and women's sailing, squash, synchronized swimming, men's volleyball, and wrestling. Now, Stanford Athletic Director Bernard Muir said, quote, 
We came to this decision only after exhausting all other viable alternatives. It recently became painfully clear we would not remain financially stable and support 36 varsity sports at a nationally competitive level, which is what we desire. End quote. And the cause of this is, of course, the financial ramifications of the coronavirus pandemic. And there is no word on if those varsity sports are ever going to return once the university recovers financially from the loss that they've sustained. And sadly, I would suspect that more high-profile universities are going to uh, follow suit and cut some of their programs as well. So after that bombshell, the Ivy League came out and they said that they're not going to be playing any sports this fall. And that was the first major college decision regarding the status of fall sports. And then right after that, you had several other major conferences announce changes to their fall sports schedules. Um, the Big Ten announced that all fall sports will play a conference-only schedule. And right after that, the Pac-12 also announced that they would play a conference-only schedule for all fall sports. And in addition to that, they're going to be delaying the start of fall sports. Now, the ACC had already postponed the start of their fall sports until early September, and they're expected to make an official statement on the status of their fall sports in late July. Now, Big 12 Commissioner Bob Bowlesby was asked about the Big 12 situation, and he said that the Big 12 is, quote, kind of on the same schedule, referring to the ACC. So, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to have an official announcement from the ACC and the Big 12 on the status of their fall sports. And the athletic directors of the SEC are slated to meet this week regarding their decision on fall sports. Now, every school's most prolific fall sport is football. And like it or not, football is also every school's biggest revenue generator. And so these announcements could have a massive impact on the financial situation of the schools. Because no football could absolutely cripple some of the major universities that make mega millions from football itself. And it seemed like just the other day, we were hearing about how all the schools were allowing false, uh, false sports athletes to begin their workouts on campus, mainly you know the football players um, starting their summer workouts and everything. And you know, of course, that was exciting news because the thought of college football just gets me pumped up. But now it seems that college football is really in serious jeopardy of not even happening at all. And I can't even imagine a fall without college football. Now, I assume that these decisions are based on whether or not the schools themselves are wanting to resume in-person classes in the fall or keep their online classes. And I get that. 
because if there aren't any students on campus, then the athletes themselves would be included in that. But just like the major pro sports are doing, they're developing protocols to keep the athletes out there. And as I've mentioned in the previous podcast, the virus is here to stay. So we just need to learn how to deal with it and move on. And personally, I believe that the school should return to the in-person classes this fall and that sports should be played in the fall. And truthfully, I don't understand or agree with the cancellation of the non-conference games, especially with football. We had some dandy out-of-conference games lined up for this fall that do not appear to be happening. And if you play a conference-only schedule, you're still allowing teams to travel to other universities to play games. And I guess I'm not understanding the logic that these conferences are using. You aren't limiting travel because you're still allowing them to travel to other states within the conference to play games. So why not just keep the out-of-conference games on there? To me, it makes no functional difference. And I'd argue that the out-of-conference games, at least the bigger matchup games, generate more money for both the universities playing in those games than a conference game does. And there was also talk this week about moving football to the spring sports docket this upcoming year. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. I mean, I just want college football. So if that's the only way we can get it, then I'll take it. But that's going to be a lot to ask of the coaches and the athletes to play a full football season in the spring and then have minimal time off before you start summer workouts and then you jump right back into the fall football schedule in 2021. And that just seems like it's going to be too much on the players and the coaches. And that's not even factoring in recruiting in the meantime. But there's several proponents of that idea, including Oklahoma head football coach Lincoln Riley. Now, the only reason that I could see the schools moving to a spring football schedule would be the financial aspect. Because if you cancel football outright, you lose millions and millions of dollars. But if you move football to the spring, you at least can make a majority of that money. And like I said, I'm a huge football fan. I just want there to be football. I don't care when. I'm just really hoping that the Power Five conferences do not cancel their fall sports altogether like the Ivy League. And, man, it's going to be super interesting to see how this unfolds. And with it being mid-July already, fall sports quickly approaching, we should have an answer on all of that very soon. But we'll, uh, we'll move on to our segment around the island as there were a ton of important quick hit topics around all the sports. Um, in the National Football League, there were several important topics that came up. Early last week, San Francisco 49ers running back Raheem Mostert requested a trade due to the team's inability to meet his request for an increase in salary. Now, Mostert proved he's capable of being a lead running back on a team. 
but he didn't become relevant until week 11 this past season. I mean, nobody even knew who the hell this guy was until week 11 of this past season. And he was tremendous in fantasy football late in the year, and he had that monster game against Green Bay in the NFC Championship game that sent the 49ers to the Super Bowl. And I'm not trying to fault the man for trying to get some more money. But just before this past season, he signed a three-year, $8.7 million contract with San Francisco. So Mostert is scheduled to make $3.15 million this year and $3.5 million in 2021. And according to NFL Network's Ian Rappaport, Raheem Mostert requested that his salary be in line with the highest paid running back on the team, which is Tevin Coleman, at $4.8 million. So because the 49ers told Mostert no to increasing his salary by just over a million and a half, he's now unhappy and wants out. And like I said, I'm not trying to blame him for trying to get paid, but dude, Come on, you were literally relevant for the last nine games of the season, including the playoffs, and you're griping over just over a million and a half dollars. Like, you're the one who agreed to this contract before this past season started. You had a few good games, and now you want more money? That's ridiculous, and frankly, it's just pure greed. And if I was the 49ers, I'd tell them, give me the stat line that you produced the final nine games over the course of a full season, and then we can talk. But until then, you either play or you can sit out. But the next NFL topic deals with the post-game jersey swaps that have taken place regularly over the past few seasons. You've definitely seen it. But a lot of the players will swap jerseys with the player on the opposite team at the end of the game. They sign each other's jersey and take a picture and all that. And I've enjoyed seeing that take place. And I really wonder what each player's jersey collection looks like. Because I think that's a great idea. And it makes for a great collector's item for each player that participates in that. Well, this year, the NFL is banning those post-game jersey swaps, and that's an absolute joke. And the NFL is way wrong on this. And to make matters worse, the National Football League Players Association actually agreed to this and signed off on it. Are you kidding me? Like, these players are literally tackling each other, sweating on each other, and breathing on each other during the course of the game. And that's okay. But swapping each other's jerseys at the end of the game is not okay? Somebody please tell me how that makes any sense at all. Now, I'm all for the protocols that make the game safer, especially this year with the pandemic going on. But this year, this crosses the line. And if I was an NFL player, I'm still swapping jerseys if somebody wants my jersey. Find me. I don't care. You don't get to play the game forever. And these jerseys are keepsakes that you can hang up 
the rest of your career and beyond. And this this is just pure absurdity and absolutely pointless. And the NFL is way out of bounds on this one. But the final NFL topic is a big one, and that deals with the Washington Redskins. And we talked about it a little bit last week. But the pressure has continued to mount for them to change their name. And news broke late on Sunday night that the the Redskins are going to officially retire the Redskins nickname and their team logo. And the new team name is going to be announced at a later date. And a lot of reports indicate that the name change could come as soon as this week, possibly within the next couple of days. But either way, we have seen the last of the Washington Redskins and Washington will be playing under a new nickname for the 2020 season. And this is super interesting because it's not very often that a major pro sports team just changes its name. But we'll move on to Major League Baseball. And this past week, Major League Baseball released each team's shortened schedule for the 60-game season that we're about to have. And this past week, the MLB released the full 162-game regular season schedule for the 2021 season. Now, I appreciate their enthusiasm, but let's worry about this season. There is plenty going on that you need to deal with before this shortened season even starts. You don't need to worry about the 2021 season when the 2020 season hasn't even started yet, especially after all the nonsense that the MLB's been through the last few months. So talk about putting the cart before the horse. But the other piece of news out of Major League Baseball deals with their um, intake COVID screening that they conducted. Now, Major League Baseball ran a total of 3,748 COVID tests during their initial mass screening. And they only got 66 positive results, which is a positive rate of 1.8%. And that's really good. And out of those 66 positives, 58 were players and 8 were staff members. And... 27 out of the league's 30 teams reported a positive test in their organization. And since that initial mass screening, another 17 people have tested positive, which is still a very low positive percentage rate. So that's definitely more good news, and it looks promising for the 2020 season. But we'll move on and circle back real quick to the National Hockey League. Uh, Tampa Bay Lightning star Steven Stamkos sustained a lower body injury during Phase 2, and he will not be a full participant during the Phase 3 training camp. However, the Tampa Bay Lightning expects Stamkos to be ready for game action once Phase 4 begins. But... Another big piece of news out of the NHL this past week was the four-year extension of the collective bargaining agreement. And the main news that came from that was the fact that the NHL players will return to the Olympics. 
And the agreement states that the players will be allowed to go to Beijing, China in 2022 and Milan, Italy in 2026. Now, the NHL had previously allowed players to participate in the Olympics from 1998 to 2014. But they did not permit them to play in the 2020, or correction, 2018 games in Pyeongchang, South Korea. Now, I love me some playoff hockey, or Olympic hockey, and it's way more of a spectacle when the NHL players are in there. Uh, The 2018 Olympics in Pyeongchang just were not the same without the NHL players. And the players love representing their countries in the Olympics, so I think that was probably a big push on the players' side of the collective bargaining agreement. But additionally, in the NHL, they announced that they were going to be um, releasing their overall COVID testing numbers and that teams are not allowed to release any individual results or injury information. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that the NHL is considering a positive COVID test, a work-related injury, whereas Major League Baseball is not. So the teams themselves will know who tests positive, and really that's all that matters because they can make the appropriate arrangements for quarantining once the test results are received. And also in the NHL, they've had six players opt out of the playoffs so far, and those players are Calgary Flames defenseman Travis Hamanick, Vancouver Canucks forward Sven Bartschi, Dallas Stars defenseman Roman Polak, Edmonton Oilers defenseman Mike Green, Boston Bruins defenseman Stephen Kampfer, Montreal Canadiens defenseman Carl Alsner. And they all have their own reasons, but I'm curious to see if that list grows. Because unlike the NBA, the NHL is jumping straight into the playoffs, so there's no regular season games that are going to be played. It's all playoffs. And I think the players would want to be out there and be a part of that and try and win the Stanley Cup. But we'll revisit the PGA Tour real quick, and just golf in general. And the breaking news from the golf world this past week was the postponements of the Ryder Cup and the President's Cup. The Ryder Cup was uh, scheduled to be September 22nd through 27th this year at Whistling Straits in Kohler, Wisconsin. And that was rescheduled to... September 21st through the 26th of 2021. Now, the President's Cup was initially scheduled for September 30th through October 3rd of 2021 at Quail Hollow Golf Club in Charlotte, North Carolina. And that's been moved to September 19th through the 25th of 2022. And both tournaments will be held at the same venues they were originally scheduled for. And those are probably good decisions on both ends because the fans have a substantial impact on both of those events with USA versus Europe. And it just would not be the same at either event without the fans. And so I'm all for the postponement until we get back to quote-unquote normal. But the PGA Tour also announced this past week a clarification to their virus policy Um, 
And the PGA stated that the players and caddies who test positive for the coronavirus can return to the course after 10 days, even if they continue to test positive. Now, you're probably thinking, what the hell? But here's the reasoning they gave. First, the players have to meet certain qualifications. And PGA Tour medical advisor Dr. Tom Hospel stated, quote, As time passes and as symptoms resolve, and the patient or individual does not have a fever and 10 days have passed, at that point, the thought and theory is that the virus, this particle that's being detected in the nasal swab, is no longer active or contagious or can potentially cause an ongoing infection. End quote. Now, I'm not a doctor, so I'm not going to argue that. And I think the original recovery time frame of 14 days seems to have been reduced to a 7 to 10 day window. And that's not just in sports, that seems to be countrywide. And I guess the thought on that is that after that 10 day window, the virus is dormant and cannot be transmitted to others. So that makes sense. But we'll move on to the National Basketball Association And this past week, all of the teams have officially traveled to ESPN's Wide World of Sports Complex in Orlando, Florida to begin their practices before their season restarts. And upon arrival, all of the players were required to quarantine in their hotel rooms for 48 hours. And the players could not practice until that 48 hours passed and they produced a negative test. But speaking of Testing, Houston Rockets guard Russell Westbrook tested positive for the coronavirus. That news was announced on Monday. And his positive test came before the Rockets traveled to Orlando. And Russell Westbrook is currently quarantined, feels fine, and will be joining his teammates as soon as he's cleared. But the other NBA news is that the NBA originally announced that the players would not be allowed to wear their fancy suits or personal clothing to the games and that they'd have to get dressed in their uniforms and warm-up jumpers at their hotel and then take the team bus to the arena so they'd be ready to warm up as soon as they got there. Well, on Monday, the NBA recalled that and said that the players can dress in their personal clothes and change in the locker rooms at the arena. But they get to practice with each other, sit on the bench next to each other, and play in the game with each other. So I'm not really sure that keeping them from changing in the locker room together was going to help prevent any additional exposures. So I don't really know why that was even a protocol to begin with. It just never even really made sense. But... That's going to wrap up the fourth episode of Sports Island. I hope you guys enjoyed that. And if you did, please tell your friends or anyone who you know may be interested about it. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the Sports Island podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. Sports Island is available on all major podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple, and Google. And you can also find Sports Island on Facebook, at Sports Island Podcast. 
So I hope you all have a good week. Stay safe, be well, and we'll catch you on Sports Island next week.